taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. It's also a good time to turn off any cell phones or pagers or whatever it was I heard a minute ago. Okay, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for its sufficiency that you have in your wisdom and in your omniscience revealed to us everything that we need to know. And also in your wisdom, you have revealed it in such a way that this information is able to be communicated across the boundaries of culture and across the boundaries of languages so that your grace is equally available to every single human being. Father, we thank you for the things that we have learned in our study of Genesis, and we pray that you would help us to uh, shape our thinking on the basis of this foundation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this evening, we're going to start uh, some review of the first section of Genesis that we've covered. Last time, we finished our exegesis and study of Genesis 11 down to about verse... Uh, wherever it is, the, just when, uh, verse 26, just when, uh, Terah, uh, begots Abram, or Avram, as he's known in the Hebrew, Nahor and Haran. That finishes the first, uh, section, basically, of Genesis. Starting in verse 27, we have the next Toledot section. This is the Toledot of Terah. Terah begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And that begins the section dealing with Abraham. And this is where you have a major shift in the book. So if we want to think through the book of, of Genesis, then we do it in terms of two things, four events and four people. Very simple. Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means in the Latin title Genesis, which was based on the Hebrew title Bereshit, which is the first word of the Hebrew text of Genesis. That's how the Old Testament, or in the Hebrew, that's how the Old Testament names books by the first uh, word in the book. So we organize Genesis around two things, four events and four people. And what we've studied so far are these four events. The first is creation, the second is the fall, the third is the flood, and the fourth is the Tower of Babel. Now, what we want to do when we go back through this review is tie up some loose ends and look at it in terms of a, of a general overview. As of our conclusion last Wednesday night, we had 57 hours of study in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And in many ways, I feel like we're just scratching the surface, and with everything that I've learned and put together and studied over the last 17 months, 
I'm almost ready to start it. Now that I really understand what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11, let's start over. There is so much going on here and so much that can be interacted with. And as you know, we've interacted with a lot over the last uh, 17 months. But this is foundational to not only the Bible, but also to history. So what I want to do is go through these four events, beginning this evening with creation, and next time uh, with the fall, next time after I return from the uh, trip, we'll look at the fall, then we'll look at the flood, and we will look at the Tower of Babel. There's a few things related to the flood that I haven't discussed yet, a few things related to the Tower of Babel and the uh, genealogies in Genesis 10 and 11 that I haven't uh, d- fully developed yet. So I'm still reading, studying much on those subjects, and each time I do, uh, I'm coming up with more and more interesting information. So what we want to do, though, in this review is, instead of dealing with a lot of the details and the exegesis, which is what we've already done, we want to take a step back. Now that we've analyzed the text, we want to step back a little bit and get more of a an overview of the text and asking the questions, what does this mean? What's significant about this? We want to look at it, first of all, from the framework of the structure of thought Moses was attempting to instill into the Israelites as they were on the plains of Moab, about to enter into the promised land, the land of the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and all the other ites that were living there making up those those uh, pagan tribes. And as God had given that land and the title deed of that land to Abraham and his descendants in perpetuity, now is the time where God is going to come through on his promise. And so the people are there, and the people, the Jews, like any other people, they're probably asking the question, why should we go in and take this land? It's not our land, it's their land. What gives us the right to go in there, and why should we go in and annihilate every man, woman, and child, every goat, every sheep, every every cow? Why should we do this? What gives us the right to do this? What is God doing? And so what Moses is doing is communicating to the Jews the foundation of a world view. Now, the Germans have a great word for what we call world view, and that is the word Weltanschauung. And this has to do with your overall approach to life. And I remember years ago getting involved in a discussion with somebody, and I said, what's your philosophy of life? Oh, I don't have a philosophy of life. Oh, good. You have an inconsistent, incoherent, unthought through, a nebulous philosophy of life. They didn't like that. But see, everybody has a philosophy of life. Some people have a nebulous, uncritical, unthought through, random, haphazard, inconsistent, philosophy of life. They just do whatever happens and they just respond to it and that's their philosophy of life. Some people have a much more thought through, consistent, rational, coherent philosophy of life. Some people have a philosophy of life based on atheism. Other people have a philosophy of life based on New Age pantheism. Other people have a philosophy of life based on 
just a, a secular humanism. Other people have a philosophy of life based on a Judeo-Christian worldview. And how you view ultimate reality affects how you view everything else, how you view creation. creation. Is this just part of a mechanistic material universe, or is this something that's created by an infinite personal God? It makes a difference how you, how you do everything in life. It changes or should change your view of everything from education to marriage to family to interpersonal relationships to law, politics, economics, sociology, whatever it may be, whatever human beings are engaged in, from agriculture to house painting, from uh, leadership in politics to leadership in the local church, everything is related ultimately back to your view of who God is and who man is. And so this is this for the Christian is founded in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. So Moses is trying to communicate a worldview to the Jews, a foundation that gives them personal identity, who they are, what their mission is, what God has called them to do, and what they are supposed to be involved in in, uh, in the world and with their neighbors in this new land. By application, what we have here is a structure of thought that God is communicating to us. So you see, we move from understanding what, God, what Moses is communicating under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Israelites in about 1400 B.C., to what God is communicating to us by application. What is it that we're supposed to learn? Because fundamentally, the worldview, this foundational concept of life, was the same for them as it is for us, and it was just they were cutting just as much against the grain by by these first 11 chapters of Genesis in 1400 B.C. as we are today. I mean, we read this and we think, well, you know, that was back then and everybody believed in God. No, they didn't. As we will see again in our review, the, the popular view of origins, a popular view of creation, was expressed in the Babylonian Enuma Elish. And that was probably the oldest complete creation uh, or origins myth that we're familiar with. And it was the Babylonian creation story. And we reviewed that 17 months ago. And if we get there tonight, we'll review it again this evening. But that is consistent and also influenced Egyptian and Greek. There was a period in the uh, around 1,000 1400 B.C., no, it wasn't that far back, about 800 to 1000 B.C., where Greek culture turned east and really adopted a lot of the mythology of the Mesopotamian area, the Babylonian area. And this just was taken over and adapted to the Greek gods. And then when the Romans came along after the Greeks, they just took all the Greek uh, pantheon, the Greek gods, and they changed the names, and they, but they had the same stories. And this, these ideas just filtered down from one generation in culture to another generation in culture. And the further back we go, the, we, we, we have a few uh, missing links. We don't see the detail that we do later on, but it was all there. So you have a, you have a worldview and a culture that the Jews are interacting with, whether they're in Egypt, whether they're in Mesopotamia, whether they're in the land of Canaan, all of these people are, the Jews are dealing with a whole 
culture surrounding them that doesn't believe like they, they do about origins. And as a result, these other cultures, from their views on law to their views on uh, everything else in society, are, are completely distorted because of their ultimate view of origins. So what God is doing here is laying the foundation for our thinking on every area of life. And just as in the ancient world, there is a conflict between the divine viewpoint analysis here and the analysis that is given in the cultures and what's popular and what's acceptable and the politically correct. So we want to go through some just some opening remarks and some review. And we're going to, I, I want to take, like as I said, one each week on each of these four events, creation, the fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel, and go back and summarize what we went through and look at it in light of this this analysis. There's some new things I'm going to, to communicate and throw in there so it's not just same old, same old, and it's going to be good review for everybody. We need to get this, this material uh, laid down uh, in our psyche. First of all, we believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of the Bible. That is what we believe. These 11 chapters are just as inspired by the Holy Spirit, just as breathed out by God, just as authoritative as any statement made by Jesus. One reason I say that is because some of you have a red-letter Bible. And see, the problem with the red-letter Bible is that it the, the, the unstated uh, presentation there is that somehow those words that are spoken by Jesus are more important and more inspired and more significant than all those words that are written in black. But you see, every word is equally inspired. So I, I, red letter editions are really a slam on the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Every word in your Bible is equally inspired and equally the Word of God. And it's not any more important or significant that Jesus said it or that somebody else said it. It's the, it is the Word of God. So we believe that these first 11 chapters are just as inspired as any other section, just as infallible as any promise made in the Psalms or in the New Testament or in Paul, and just as certain as the events foretold and fulfilled, uh, just as, as certain as the events that were foretold in the Old Testament and then were literally fulfilled in the life of Christ. That is how certain these events in the first 11 chapters of Genesis are. They're not myth. They are not even the, just the Jewish form of other myths. See, that's a popular thing that if you're, those of you who are in uh, uh, high school, those of you who are going to go to college, one day you're going to sit in a classroom and you're going to have probably a literature professor tell you that, that Enuma Elish is just the Babylonian version and it's not any different. In fact, it may even be more poetic in somebody's opinion than what's in the Bible. So who's to say which is the true story? Everybody had a different creation myth. I was talking to someone uh, in university just uh, in the last couple of weeks, and they had a, uh, a literature professor who did just that very thing. And so this is common, this is typical, this is standard operating procedure in any secular school or secular classroom. And that's one reason I prepare you for this. You need to be prepared as parents, and you need to prepare your children. 
We believe that the Bible is an integrated whole, that every part of the Bible is equally significant, whether it's in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the last uh, 15 chapters of Revelation, whether it's in the Gospels, whether it's in Psalms, whether it's in Lamentations. Every part of the Bible is is significant and part of a whole so that each part and section fits together and is interdependent on the other parts of the Bible. So much so that if you come along and you take out your razor blade and cut out two or three chapters anywhere, it's going to have ramifications everywhere. And it will change the message of the Bible and it will dilute the message of the Bible. So every part of the Bible is equally inspired and fully inspired and fits together with every other part to make a coherent whole. So the first 11 chapters of the Bible are the foundation to the Bible, and we run into, and we discuss this, all of the major doctrines that are initiated in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You have, we're introduced to God at the very beginning as the Creator God. He is omnipotent. He is completely distinct from His creation, which means He's omnipotent. He is able to create all of the systems and all of the designs in the universe, which means that he is omniscient because he has to deal with such a vast amount of data and control it and put it all together. He is omniscient. You know, we could logically deduce many things from the fact that he is the creator of everything, but we have the scriptures that develop this. Furthermore, we know there's an ethical aspect to God. He is not simply a God who has all of this knowledge and all this power, But he is a righteous God. He is a God of integrity. And he places certain demands upon his creatures in relationship to to morality. And there was a test in the Garden of Eden. So we're introduced to the fact that that God has created man. And we're introduced to to the doctrine of man and who man is. And to understand who a human being is and what makes us human beings and what is significant about a human being is derived from the first three chapters of Genesis. And if you are involved in any kind of career, any kind of uh, education, any kind of of, uh, study that involves people, you have to start with an understanding of Genesis 1 through 3. If you don't, then whatever the data is that you're using or analyzing, whatever the data is that you're uh, field of study is in, the, the, the information is skewed. It's leaving out crucial parts of information. Now think about that. If you're in psychology and you're excluding what the Bible says about the nature of man as being created in the, in, in the image and likeness of God, and the Bible says that man's basic problem is that he has a sin nature and that that core problem can't be resolved apart from the grace of God, then how is that going to affect your your life in, as a psychologist trying to communicate to people who have marriage problems or have difficulty raising their children or have problems uh, uh, just coping with life? See, if you don't take into account Genesis 1 through 3, your solution is no solution because it's based on an, a, a view of people and a view of reality that is distorted, a view of reality that doesn't take into account a lot of truth, and so you can't really help people. You may be able to to put a Band-Aid on some things, but it doesn't provide real long-term solutions. If you're a politician 
And you are utilizing all these polls, which is something that is typical today. Every time you turn on the television, there's another poll. Well, the whole operation in science of taking a poll is all grounded in sociology. And sociology is predicated upon a certain view of human beings and why they are the way they are and why they do things the way they do. And, of course, Herbert Spencer and um, August Comte, who are considered the fathers of modern sociology, hobnobbed around with Charles Darwin. They were close buddies, and they cross-fertilized in terms of their intellectual ideas. So that the very foundation of sociology is an evolutionary view of man as an animal. And so if you're in, in any field, if you're in sales, and you're out there reading motivational literature, sales literature, any of this kind of stuff, any self-improvement stuff, it's all predicated on some kind of view of sociology. Well, where is the data coming from? And what data is it? So you see it affects everything. Uh, mathematics, we think of the hard sciences in some ways as being divorced from this, but, but math is what it is because it's just another language, just another way of expressing things. We covered this a couple of weeks ago in Revelation. And studying the, the, the biblical doctrine of language, that mathematics undergirds everything and how you view math. Math is simply man's way of expressing his observations about the nature of the universe according to certain formula, certain symbols. And there are certain presuppositions that undergird uh, all of mathematics. And so that's going to be affected in some way by your ultimate view of reality. Science goes without saying in, in biology or, or geology when you're dealing with certain things. Ultimately, it has to do with origins and what's the nature of animals, what's the nature of man. When you're dealing with today in, in our modern society with issues related to ethics, what, what are we going to do now? There was a picture on the... Um, in the newspaper the other day of, uh, or on the internet with this new ultrasound where they have clearer pictures of what's going on inside the womb and, and fetal activity. And of course, there's uh, the assumption that because there's fetal activity that a soul is present. And we've studied this and we've looked at what the Bible teaches. Just because a soul isn't present yet, if we take a view that we, that we hold or that I hold, that, that the soul is not imparted till birth, but that doesn't mean that what is going on in the womb is not human. It's human. It's stage one. And as I've stated many times, we have to make sure that, that uh, we recognize that just because it doesn't become full human life until birth doesn't mean that that limits or diminishes the significance of what's in the womb. But you have all kinds of other things going on today from... from um, um, Stem cell research to uh, in vitro fertilization and what do you do with all of the other fertilized uh, cells? All of this ultimately comes down to what do you understand about what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11? Everything from, from geography to some degree, meteorolo- meteorology, our understanding of the ice ages, all of this is affected by our understanding of these first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's not just something interesting to tell us about how man fell and how sin entered into the universe and how God had to s- judge sin a second time because of the angelic infiltration prior to the flood. 
It goes a lot deeper than that. It's, it's, there's a tremendous amount of profound information here that we can't just uh, step past. So we believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of the Bible. It talks about volition, the importance of human responsibility, the influence of sin, what sin brought into creation in terms of the consequences of the sin penalty. We have to remember that there is a distinction between the penalty for sin, which is spiritual death on the one hand, and the consequences that that engendered on the other hand, that physical death, physical suffering, uh, certain changes in the animal kingdom, all of this, these things were the consequences of that spiritual death. And that then challenges our thinking as to just what is God trying to demonstrate in all of this. So we look at the fact that God, that there's sin that's entered into human race, and that God in His integrity and in His love has also provided a solution. And we see that announced at the very beginning. God didn't wait six months, six years, sixty years before He announced a plan of redemption. He's not caught by surprise. As soon as it happens, He says... He announces a plan of redemption, and we saw that in the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.16. So we have sin, we have uh, man's basic problems, suffering, we have redemption, uh, you have uh, marriage, family, nations. All these doctrines are have their foundation in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. Furthermore, as a second part, second observation is we believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of human history. That we realize as you study this and as you go out and study what what has been done, and there are creationists and there are biblicists who are out there doing some incredible work and have really discovered some fascinating information in um, that, that's hidden away in different libraries, different places that document different things in the past which fit into the biblical scenario. And one that comes to my mind that I'm reading about right now, and when we get back down to our review on the flood, I'll bring this in. But I've had a book for several years I've just now started to look at called The uh, Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings. And one of the fascinating things in this book is it was written by Charles Hapgood back in the early 60s, and there was a map that was discovered in the uh, early part of this century in the uh, Imperial Palace in Constantinople that was the map that was, uh, according to the inscription, was drawn by a Turkish admiral back in the about 1513, just uh, 11 years after Columbus discovered America. And in this map... It has the outline, the contours of the coastline of South America. I'm not South America, Antarctica. The coastline of Antarctica. Not the coastline of the ice cap, but the coastline of the land mass underneath the ice cap. Well, the the land mass has been underneath the ice cap since the last ice age. And if we believe... Uh, the history that most of us were taught in, in school, no, nobody would know what was underneath the ice cap until just recently when, as a result of satellite imagery and, and different kinds of uh, uh, abilities to photograph landmass, we, we can map the, the landmass underneath the Antarctic ice cap and where all the rivers are and everything. But this map is precise. 
detailed. It has a precise outline of the coast of South America and Africa. Now, if you think about what is involved in in drawing a map, you have to not only know latitude but longitude. It wasn't until the late 1700s that and that we could we could accurately determine longitude. Most of the maps that came out of the late Middle Ages and that are, that you see drawn are all off in terms of their of longitude because they didn't know how to take longitude. You have to have be able to have precise. Uh, I have a precise timepiece in order to discover longitude. And when you're out on the open sea and you're dealing with the waves and gravity and winds and, and tossing and turning, it's very difficult to have a timepiece that isn't affected by humidity, rust, all these other factors that can enter in the expansion and um, shrinking of metals and wood. And all of that could affect the uh, accuracy of the timepiece. So... We couldn't do that, yet whoever drew these maps had had a precise way to determine latitude and longitude. And these maps were allegedly drawn from maps that were used by, that were available to Alexander the Great, went back to the Great Library in Alexandria, which was destroyed back before before Christ and had a wealth of information that uh, we would love to have. But the, the theory is, and the view is, that these maps were drawn by those early descendants who came off the ark by the sons of Noah and his grandsons and great-grandsons who lived for three, four, five hundred years. And they went out and their their families and they sailed the earth's oceans and they were drawing the charts and they had the instrumentation to do this, which was later lost. So this is the kind of stuff you never hear about. But in these early chapters of Genesis, we have the foundation of human history and what the what the threads are there. And we understand, as we saw in Genesis 9, with at the end of Genesis 9, with Noah's curse on on the the, the curse on Canaan and the blessing on Shem and Japheth, that this gives a structure. He, through divine inspiration, divine insight, saw through his three sons a certain course that human history would take. And so all of this comes comes out of this period. Now, if we believe that these 11 chapters are not only the foundation of the Bible, but also the foundation of history, this gives us a divine interpretation of history and the divine perspective on humanity, and it provides the framework for understanding everything that we see in, in creation so that it's not only the theology and the religion, the doctrine, whatever word you want to use that's presented in the Bible that's important, but it gives a framework for everything else in life. And so we have the chart here that there's two basic types of thinking. And we're familiar with this. There's divine viewpoint thinking on the left and human viewpoint thinking. Now, uh, there's other terms that I use that are synonymous to human viewpoint thinking. We can call it cosmic thinking, which is, I use it, spell it with a K, because this reflects the Greek word cosmos, which is normally translated worldliness. It's the same kind of thinking that characterized Satan or the demons. Uh, James 3.13, it's, it's the wisdom of the world is earthy, it's natural, that is soulish, and it's demonic. So the writer James ties these together. 
It's paganism. These all are the same thing. It is a system of thought, and there are many different uh, elements within human viewpoint thinking, that, but they all ultimately represent the same thing. We may look out there and say, well, there's a thousand different different ideas on creation. There's 500 different religions in the world, or whatever it may be. No, there's basically only two. And it's divine viewpoint or human viewpoint. And divine viewpoint is going to look at the world and the events and the details of the world and say, okay, how does God say we are to interpret this data? And human viewpoint comes and says, well, I can interpret this data on the basis of rationalism, my own reason, or empiricism, my experience, or mysticism, I have some sort of intuitive insight in the nature of reality, and I just know it's this way because that's what makes sense to me. But all of that relates to man's arrogance, that man can interpret the world around him and come to certain conclusions apart from God. And the first example we see of this is in the first two chapters of Genesis, where God gives, puts Adam in the garden and says, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. And when God put Adam in the garden, there were a lot of things that Adam could have learned through rationalism, empiricism, and even mysticism about the nature of the garden and the nature of the trees. He could have said, well, these trees have needles and these trees have, these trees have flat leaves. These are tall trees. These are short trees. These produce fruit. These produce cones. He could have written thousands of observations about the different kinds of vegetation that was growing in the garden. But unless God spoke to him to tell him that that one tree would kill him spiritually, Adam couldn't learn that information on the basis of reason, experience, or, or, or mysticism. So God, it is necessary to have God interpret the elements of creation for us or we don't fully accurately understand them. So this is just the first example. God says you shall not eat or you will certainly die. And in human viewpoint, or that is satanic thought, Satan or the serpent comes along to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and says just the opposite. You won't die. And this is the conflict we face in as Christians in the world, is that we believe what God says in the Bible is absolutely true, and nobody around us believes that because they are operating on either autonomous reason or autonomous experience or mysticism, and they're, are they're, they're blending the Bible with one of those, but ultimately whenever you blend the Bible with one of those systems, it always corrupts the Bible. And so they come up with different conclusions. And so the issue is, are we going to be steadfast in our understanding of the Scripture? And there is always this this conflict, and we've seen that human viewpoint thinking always fails. And here's a chart that um, I first tried to decipher about 30 years ago when I saw it. I think Charlie Clough's father developed this. But Charlie's used this many, many times, and I've used a scaled-down version of this to um, simplify it a few times. But this is how the original uh, looks. And a friend of mine in Houston uh, jazzed this thing up so that it could be used in a PowerPoint presentation. What we have here is a basic graph. You have your x-axis and y-axis, and here on your vertical axis, you have this. This is space. 
Okay, you see here on the left it says space in logarithms of centimeters to the base 10. In other words, we start off here at the bottom where the two axes intersect, and we're at the smallest possible level, minus 12 atom molecules. And as we move up the scale, things get larger and larger and larger, moving from the atom, atom molecules to the atom, to bacteria, to one centimeter, to man, to mountains, to the sun, to the solar system, and on up to galaxies. So as you go up the scale, things get larger. Now as you go on the, this axis here to the, to the right, this measures time in logarithms of seconds to the base 10. Okay, so we start off with the smallest possible amount of time, minus 18, an, uh, the, the, a period of an x-ray period, and you move up, and as you go from left to right, you get to larger and larger time periods until you get to one second right here. See, see all of this time frame here, can you all see the arrow okay? All of this is shorter, time frame shorter than a second. This is one second. Here's one hour, one year, the, the period of history and human history. This is going beyond hu- human history to the beginning of life and then the age of the universe. Now, what we see is that we can measure just with the human being, any human being, any one of us can measure a time in space down to a certain small increment, down to about the, uh, down to a little bit smaller than a centimeter, so that forms the bottom line here. Anything that's smaller than, uh, looks like about one, minus one, anything smaller than that on that scale, you get down to an, uh, a bacteria or atom, anything of that nature, you have to use uh, a microscope in order to see it. But you, uh, a microscope's only good so far, and then things can get so small you can't even see it with, with the aid of an instrument. When you look at the top and you look at large things, you can't perceive things much larger than the sun. Now, if you take something out there at a distance, you can see the sun or you can see galaxies out there. But if you were right there, you couldn't perceive the whole thing. We can't perceive the the entirety of the Milky Way galaxy sitting inside the galaxy. Now, if it were off somewhere like a... Uh, like the Horse Nebula or Orion, some some galaxy out in the universe, then we could see it way out there. But in terms of being present, we we can't perceive the entirety of the Milky Way galaxy. It's beyond our our human ability to see it. But we can see these things with the telescope, with aided, uh, with enhancements. So there's a top line to what man can directly perceive. So that form, begins to form this inner box. On the left side, this, this is the measure of time. We can go down to one second or maybe a little bit less than a second. We can measure that. But if it gets much shorter than that, we have to use time-lapse photography in order to see what's going on. So with time-lapse photography, you can, you can film things that take place in a, in an ex, in a nanosecond. Then up here on the, on the right side of this box, when it gets beyond the historical period where there's been direct observation, you, you can only see so much. You can't go beyond that. You have this, uh, uh, we've had human beings live and write things down for about maybe 5,000 years. 
If there was anything recorded before that, we don't know. So there's no direct observation. And the point is that when you get outside of the box, you really start getting into areas that can, where we can get information only by, by spe- special aids. If you go beyond that, and that's this great, great in area here, if you go beyond that, you're in the realm of just pure deduction. It's pure guesswork. There's no certainty out there at all. It's just guesswork. So when you're thinking about the study of origins and evolution, there's no empirical data. It's just guesswork. You have fossils, but that can be interpreted a couple of different ways that we know of. You can interpret it either according to the evolutionary way, or you can interpret it according to uh, what the Bible says. But those fossils don't come along with a little sign that says, uh, I was made in... You know, 50,000 years B.C. or 150,000 years B.C. or 2 million B.C. That's all done by certain deductions and guesswork that's based on assumptions and presuppositions. So this chart here just shows the limits of human reason. Man is really in an an epistemological box. Now, there's a fancy 50-cent word for you that really has great significance. Epistemology is how do you know what you know. It's a branch of philosophy. And um, it was interesting, the other night we were, when I was down in Houston, we were sitting around after Bible class, and we were talking about uh, some of this, not just this, but spiritual life, and I picked up a phrase that Pastor Theme used to use a lot called epistemological rehabilitation. And, you know, that's just one of those phrases that rolls off of people's tongues. It sounds impressive. 99.9% of the people who heard that don't have a clue what that's talking about. It is a powerful phrase, though, and a significant phrase. See, most every unbeliever out there is operating on an epistemology of either autonomous rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism. And we allegedly, hopefully are operating on, a, on an epistemology that's based on revelation. But you, do you realize what you have to do to overhaul, to rehabilitate your thinking and when you move from being an unbeliever to a believer so that every amount of your thinking is based now on revelation and not on the, the conclusions of autonomous reason, empiricism, and mysticism? That is an, a daunting task. It takes a lifetime and more to completely overhaul our thinking. Now, but that's what that term means, and most people just think it means, you know, changing out the um, the details of your wallpaper in your house, in your, in your mental house by by metaphor, or changing the um, changing around the room arrangements, or moving the pictures on the wall. That sort of thing. Using as using a house as a metaphor, when what God is going to do is come in with a with a bulldozer and wipe out the whole thing. He wants to tear it down to the foundation, rebuild the foundation on the Word of God, and start over. And most people don't want to do that. This is what's involved. We have to overhaul the way we think, Romans 12.2. So the Bible makes it clear that it is presenting a, a view of history, a view of life, a view of creation that is 180 degrees opposite everything else. And no matter where you go, you're going to run into that conflict, but... It wasn't any different from, for the Jews that were sitting outside the land of Canaan in 1400 B.C. They were just as radically different in their view of origins as we are. 
Now, the, the, the surrounding culture wasn't expressing it in the technical scientific language, but they had the same problem. They were surrounded by it. Paul was surrounded by it. Everywhere he went as a missionary, whether he was in Lystra, Derby, Ephesus, Corinth, every, everywhere he went on the walls and the mosaics on the floors, the paintings, the buildings, the uh, Acropolis, the temples, Everywhere he went, he ran into this. It was, it was screaming at him everywhere he went. And a completely different view of origin. So don't get the idea that we're out here fighting the battle and it's some kind of new battle. This has been going on for, for centuries. So we believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of human history. And furthermore, we believe the interpretation of the first 11 chapters of Genesis sets the pattern for the interpretation of the rest of the Bible. How you interpret Genesis 1 to 11 will impact how you interpret the rest of the Bible. If you come in and you make these allegories, there wasn't a literal Adam and Eve. These are, they're just symbols for, you know, the original parents and uh, some kind of fallen to sin. Then all of a sudden what you're doing is setting a pattern where you are no longer taking other things in the Bible literally. And you're going to change them around or, well, he didn't mean that literally. That's just some sort of symbol where you're able to avoid the impact of the literal interpretation. So how you interpret and understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis will set the pattern for the interpretation of the rest of the Bible. If you believe in a literal Genesis 1 through 11, you need to believe in a literal revelation. I don't mean revelation as a concept, but the the uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible. And then fourth, by way of introduction, we've seen that the Bible presents God's interpretation of man, of history, of society, marriage, family, government. That's all society and everything in between. All social relationships are laid down in these first 11 chapters. Uh, and everything that relates to that, such as economics, politics, history, literature, all is impacted by our understanding of these first 11 chapters of Genesis. Well, let's get to the beginning. We talked, I've just given an overview and an introduction so far. We just have about 10 or 15 minutes left. We haven't even started a review of creation yet. But by way of review, we're going to, we'll look at the first event, which is creation. Now, these events, creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, are historical events that took place in, in time. They're not just stories designed to communicate morals or ethics or high principles. They are historical events. Christianity, unlike any other religion in human history, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, whatever it may be, outside of the Judeo-Christian religions and their distortions in terms of Islam and even Mormonism, are grounded in history. So that if it didn't take place the way the Bible says it took place, then the theology that is derived from it is false. And that's why the empty tomb is attacked. That's why Genesis 1-11 to is attacked, because if the critic can destroy the significance of Gen- or the reality of Genesis 1 through 11 that really didn't happen that way, that they poke holes in it, then it destroys the theology of the whole Bible and basically rips the foundation out from under Christianity. So you can't compromise on anything in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. 
And the Bible begins with God as the ex nihilo creator. This is completely different from everything else. You can say there's 20, 50, 100, 200 different, different creation stories throughout the world. But there's only two. There is the view of the Bible that God is completely distinct from creation and creates everything by his own power, by the, by the word of his own power, or that somehow the matter is eternal and it sort of self-generates and creation comes out of itself and that matter is eternal. Those are the only two views and it doesn't matter whether you're an ancient Babylonian, modern Darwinian, neo-Darwinian, uh, punctuated uh, evolutionist or whatever it is, it, it's all the same thing. Whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a, a Buddhist, whether you are a Zoroastrian or whether you're a secular scientist, it, it, basically just a different spin on the same basic concept of origins. But the Bible and the Bible alone presents God as the ex nihilo creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is a very clear concept of ex nihilo creation. God is distinct from everything in the universe. Heavens and the earth is a Hebrew term, as we studied, for the universe. God is different. He's not part of the universe. Hebrews 11.3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We studied this a couple of weeks ago. The rhema, the spoken word of God. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. It is what he spoke. So the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. This describes ex nihilo creation. It's not that clear from Genesis 1.1, but Hebrews 11.3 clarifies it and makes makes sure we don't misunderstand it. John 1.3, we're told all things were made through him, that is the Logos, Jesus Christ, as the agent of creation, and without him nothing was made that was made. What a profound statement. No matter what it is, if it was made, it was made by Jesus Christ. He made everything. It sets God apart. It is He's completely distinct from creation. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And then Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. This doesn't leave anything out. And it presents a clear view that God, the God of the Bible, is completely distinct from creation. You can't go back and read these creation myths from the ancient cultures and say that, oh, that's just another way of looking at the same story. It's not. The story in the Bible says God is distinct. He doesn't create everything out of himself, out of his material body parts, or some of the other ways that that are uh, described in these creation myths. The Bible presents a unified view. What we have here in this chart is the contrast between the biblical view and the all of the other views. The biblical view begins with God who is a personal and infinite God. He is a person. When when you get past everything, what you're dealing with in God is a 
is a person, someone who's capable of relationship. And he is also infinite. He is without bounds. He's unlimited. He's infinite with respect to knowledge. He's omniscient. He's infinite with respect to power. He's omnipotent. He's infinite with respect to his uh, spatial abilities. He's omnipresent. He is a personal infinite God. And there is a black bar there uh, separating uh, the personal infinite God on the top from the finite universe underneath. God is completely different. He is completely other from his universe. He created the finite universe, and you have man, animals, vegetation, matter, and energy are all part of that finite universe, but they are distinct from God. This is the biblical view of creation. On the right-hand side, we start off not with an infinite personal God, but with an infinite impersonal universe. That Even when you go back to the Big Bang, when you have this condensed, incredibly condensed piece of matter that then explodes, what was there before the Big Bang? There was something there, wasn't there? That matter came from something. So even before the Big Bang, there was something that existed. So you have an infinite universe, but it's impersonal. There's no person there. So how does personality come out of impersonality? How does that which is immaterial come out of that which is material? You you start off with an infinite impersonal universe, and then I've drawn a circle here, and inside that circle you have God, man, and nature are all part of that infinite impersonal universe. There's nothing, they're, they're not distinct. And this becomes part of what the, the ancients called, starting with Plato and many others, called the great chain of being. That from Whether you're talking about the smallest amoeba to God, they're all part of the same existence. They're all part of the same being. There's only a difference in quality or quantity of being, not quality. And the difference is it's all part of the same thing, so that when Darwin came along... He really wasn't developing anything that was all that radically new. In fact, evolutionist Lauren Isley comments about the chain of being, saying all that the chain of being actually needed to become a full-fledged evolutionary theory was the introduction into it of the conception of time in vast quantities added to mutability of form. The seed of evolution lay buried in this traditional metaphysic which indeed prepared the Western mind for its acceptance. This whole concept of a chain of being really is, it's, it's played out in the, in the ancient mythologies of Enuma Elish and the Egyptian cosmogonies and Hesiod and all the Greek cosmogonies. But when it, and then it, then it gets articulated in Plato. It goes, it's developed further in Gnosticism. You have this great chain there. And then it goes underground all through the Middle Ages, but it's always influencing everybody. They don't acknowledge it. On the one level, they talk about God as creator, but on the other hand, it's it's buttressing all of the scholastic thought in the Middle Ages because most of it was based on Platonism to some degree. Even if it's Christian, you have Augustine, many others, and... And then once you sort of throw off the Catholic Church at the, at the, at the, 
at the Reformation, then this stuff kind of bubbles back to the surface in the 1700s and starts influencing uh, everybody again. But it just it, Henry Morris discusses this in his book, The Long War Against God, and it just shows that human viewpoint has been putting up this this assault against a biblical view of of, a, of the Creator since the fall. So we have a, a clear demarcation between the biblical view of creation and the biblical view of creation. But the Bible always goes back and interprets Genesis 1 through 11 in a literal way. For example, Jesus interprets the events of the creation literally. When he's asked about divorce in Matthew 19, and I'm not going to get, I don't want to deal with that subject, but his answer is, in Matthew 19:4 and 5, he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's a quote from Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28, first chapter of Genesis. He treats it as if as a real, literal event. Matthew 19:5, and he also said, and he said, for this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, who says that? Well, God says that at the end of where? where, where? The end of Genesis chapter 2. Now, modern man comes along and says Genesis 1 was written by one person, Genesis 2 by somebody else, and later on they just kind of cobbled it together. But you see, Jesus didn't have the benefit of modern scholarship, he recognized that both were written by the same author. And they're both, they're both valid and treats him as literal events. Uh, Jesus doesn't make any comment on the fall, doesn't mention Adam by name in the, in the gospel accounts, but he does mention Noah many times. Matthew 24, 37, and 38, when asked about the signs of the times, he compares it to the days of Noah, treating the days of Noah as a literal event. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. He treats it as a literal historical event. In the genealogy for Christ... The genealogies are treated as literal events. There we see Noah mentioned there. Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, Luke 3.36. But Luke chapter 3, verses 30, um, about 34 down to 38, takes the, the genealogy of Genesis 10 and Genesis 5 in a literal fashion. Luke 17, 26, and 27. There's a reiteration of the Matthew 24, 37, 38 passage. They treated the existence of Noah in a literal way. Now, Jesus doesn't mention the Tower of Babel, but other writers do. Um, you get into New Testament writers. They clearly interpreted the events of Genesis 1 through 3 literally. First uh, Corinthians 11:9. Paul builds his whole understanding of the relationship between relationship between men and women in marriage and in church on what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. If Genesis 1 didn't take place the way he it said, or Genesis 2, then you can throw out First Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 4:6. 
Paul says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he treats Genesis 1, 3 as a literal historical event. Ephesians 3, 9, uh, the last phrase, God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. Hebrews 4.4 recognizes the literalness of the seven-day work of restoration. For He has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. That's Hebrews 4, 4, treats Genesis 1 as literal. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, passage we just studied in, on Sunday morning. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's a direct quote from Genesis 2, 7. James 3, 9, talking about the tongue. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Genesis 1, 26, treats it literally. Revelation 4, 11, every creature which is, uh, you are worth, the, the, the uh, angels in heaven sing, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Revelation 5.13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Revelation 10.6, And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it that they should delay no longer. So again and again throughout the New Testament, it affirms the literal historicity of the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis. talks about the fall, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14 again. Uh, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Romans five fourteen talking about uh, sin, death reigned from Adam to Moses. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two for as in Adam all die. The flood is recognized as having happened literally in Hebrews 11:7 and 1 Peter 3:20 and first our second Peter 2:5. Again and again and again, the New Testament recognizes the literal events of Genesis 1 to 11. If you take those out, then you destroy whatever is being taught doctrinally in the New Testament based on that. You can't just come along and say, well, I'm going to believe the New Testament, but not the, not the Old Testament. I can't take Genesis literally. We must, because our very faith, salvation itself, the work of Christ on the cross for our salvation is based on the literal historicity of these first chapters of Genesis. Well, next time we'll come back. I want to address a few more things having to do with the creation, and then we'll go on into our review of the fall with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, to be challenged by them, to realize how important it is to study and understand, comprehend and to, uh, all of these events and to let that shape the way we think about everything in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.